This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Tesla's got a bit of a money tree today. The company planning to raise about $2 billion through debt and stock offerings. It needed that money, and investors said, we kind of like it because the stock's up about 4.4%. Let's get into this story. Craig Trudell is U.S. Autos team leader at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio with the Tesla company part of this story. And then Molly Smith wrote the story about the capital raise. She is corporate finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Molly, let's go to you. This is one of our most read stories, I think, if not the most read, on the Bloomberg Terminal today. Tell us exactly what Tesla did. I think they really answered what all the analysts have been waiting for. This has been a capital raise that's been really telegraphed from both the um, equity and credit analysts that follow the company. So Tesla coming out today saying they're going to raise a little over $2 billion between stock and convertible bonds. And that's exactly what analysts wanted to see, um, that this seemed to be the right kind of financing method as opposed to unsecured debt, which would have been very expensive, um, although the bonds are rallying today, so that's helping a bit. Um, but this really is, uh, I think, exactly what the street wanted to see to put some of those liquidity uh, fears to rest, at least in the near term. Yeah, it's sort of interesting, and and Craig Trudell, come on in here, because you know, in some cases, if a company says, oh man, we need to go raise a bunch more money, investors might say, rut-row, and sell uh, rather than buy. But this is not just any ordinary company in some ways, right? It is not whatsoever. And I think I think maybe what's going on here, and this is, sort of follows up on Molly's points, is that everybody's sort of known for some time that Tesla needs to raise capital. And, yeah. and Musk has been sort of in denial, I think, about that for for maybe about a year or so and be been sort of, uh, you know, very resistant to it. And it's been kind of curious because they have been sort of scrape, scraping by. Um, and, and so I, I think this was sort of a – this is a breath of relief a little bit that there, wa- there weren't any sort of issues that were preventing them from going back to the markets to, to raise – and uh, as as Molly said, you know, it sort of puts to rest uh, these concerns about, um, you know, them kind of scraping by. So well, and it's such an interesting point that that you that you say that because it it was out in the plain open. You know, like people mm-hmm. know the numbers, they know what the ambition is, and I mean, how much of this and and you follow this so closely, how much of this is sort of Musk. Musk gonna Musk, you know, like this is just <laughs> how he rolls. Well, and I mean, you know, there were just reasons to think that maybe there were issues that were preventing them from being yeah. able to raise money. You think about Musk's uh, run-ins with the SEC, um, which uh, we, of course, uh, follow on a day to day. And, you know, I, I, this actually even came up on an earnings call within the last couple quarters that you know, an analyst said that there had been sort of rumors of a Wells notice, and maybe that was, uh, you know, sort of an explanation for why Musk was so resistant to a capital raise. And they sort of tried to put that to bed. Uh, But even still, I think there are a lot of people out there who are are, were were worried that, uh, you know, perhaps there was, you know, something keeping them uh, from from being able to raise. Uh, 
they also acknowledge, the company acknowledges in regulatory filings that they're investigated over what they said uh, they were going to be able to do producing the Model 3. And we know that they came way short of, you know, sort of what they said they were going to be able to do in late 2017. So, Mm. you know, those sorts of investigatory questions uh, sort of looming, I think, contributed to some of the, the, you know, worst fears. And, you know, now they're going to sort of replenish that balance sheet that is in desperate need of, of some more cash. So, Molly, I guess at this point, right, because the offerings could be more than two, like $2.3 billion. Mm-hmm. So I guess what we want to see is the bond offering. Does it, is it oversubscribed? Like, we want to see how investors take to it, right? Yeah, and that's going to be uh, coming in later today with the equity uh, dealing as well. Um, so, so far, we've just seen some initial price talk and um, the conversion premium on those notes. Um, but I think like what Craig was saying uh, with – you know, with the Model 3 and how this really is a big change of strategy here for Tesla. Like the whole idea that with Elon saying in the past year, we're not going to need to raise money has really been on, it's been (laughs) on the idea that the Model 3 is going to be so cash flow generative, we're going to get the production up. And that's why we won't need to raise money. But per last week's earnings, that obviously is not the strategy anymore. We're going with a few other side projects that are not quite the Model 3. Right, We've got right. robo-taxis. We have leaf blowers. It's a much <laughs> different company. I mean, and that is ultimately why like this, the financial strategy has shifted as well. well Carol's I, in the market for a Tesla leaf blower. <laughs> isn't everyone? Yeah. But I do wonder if, Craig, when you look at the financial picture of this company, I mean, are they going to have to go back in six months or 12 months for another capital raise? I, I think one of the excuses you hear Musk make about sort of why, why the first quarter was so rough was that they were sort of just getting their sea legs under them, getting the Model 3 out in, outside of North America, getting, uh, getting those to Europe. Um, they, they've talked about uh, Model S and Model X uh, that, that consumers were sort of anticipating an update of those, and they weren't able to sort of follow through on that update until the second quarter. Um, and so, you know, if if it's the case that they're able to get some momentum outside of North America with a three, that Model S and Model X come back because those were really they, they had a very rough uh, first quarter as well. Um, you know, and, and the Model Three just we, we see it sort of regain momentum, and this was just you know a sort of seasonal first few months of the year thing where you know uh, all automakers you know have a little bit more trouble selling right. cars mm-hmm. in the first months of the year. Right. If we get back into the spring selling season and Tesla's looking just fine uh, sales wise, then you know I, th- I think we can you know envision yeah. a situation where this company is generating cash again, and, and you know they're not have we're not worrying about them coming back to market tomorrow. Well, it's a great story. <laughs> hey, exactly. Exactly. Craig Trudell, thank you so much. U.S. Auto's team leader at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Molly Smith wrote the story. It is our second most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours. She is corporate finance reporter, crazy smart, Bloomberg News. She, too, is back in our New York studio. Tesla shares, they are trading higher. Up in the morning and out to school. All right. So this story, I I mean, you read the headline alone and you think, I got to see what's going on. Buffett reveals, quote, outrageous acts that lifted college endowment. What does that mean? You click through and you learn it's about a tiny liberal arts college in Iowa. Janet Lauren here with us with the story. She wrote it. All right. Give us the give us the scoop. So the scoop is uh, Grinnell College, a school in Iowa of about 1,700 students, has a $2 billion endowment. 
and you wonder, God, there's got to be a story behind that. And the story right. is because Warren Buffett uh, was a trustee at this school and sat on the investment committee. And he had How nothing. How does that happen, first of all? Well, he had absolutely nothing to do with Grinnell, except he met a friend in about 1967 uh, named Joe Rosenfield. Joe was introduced to Warren Buffett by a cousin in Des Moines. And the two guys just hit it off and became very good friends. And uh, Joe had an extraordinary vision that said, if we can build up the endowment, we can survive. This college could survive. And to, to have that you know, thought that you need money to survive, you know, back in the 60s was quite visionary considering, you know, we're talking about colleges closing and especially the very types of small liberal arts college in areas where the population of 18-year-olds is declining. So he was quite visionary. And he enlisted his friend, Warren Buffett, and they just had a grand old time investing and finding things to invest in. And uh, this new book came out today, a biography of Joe, uh, written by the former president of Grinnell. His name is George Drake, a historian. And Warren Buffett wrote the foreword. And let me just read you this quote very quickly. We conspire to have the college buy convertible de uh, dentures in uh, startup Intel, shorted securities in a can't-lose arbitrage, AT&T, made a leveraged buyout of a network television station, and the list goes on. And you could just sort of hear the glee in his voice talking about how he invested with his friend, not on behalf of himself, but at this little college that he had no tie with. I mean, it's amazing, too. And a reminder, Janet, and you know this business literally better than anyone I know, about you know endowments are such a key funding source for a lot of investors that we, that we talk to uh, all the time. And they need this money, yes. the endowments do, to run their uh, – to, to literally run the operations. It can be the difference, as you've alluded to, between a college surviving and a college having to go out of business at a time where higher education is – under duress, shall we say. Yes. And, you know, Grinnell relies on the endowment, if my memory serves, for about half of its entire budget. Wow. And, yeah. And there are a couple of colleges, um, Amherst, Princeton University also re um, relies on about half of its budget from the endowment. So these are really important investing decisions. And, you know, you hear people say, you know, we have time, a timeline of centuries. Um, and, you know, Warren Buffett just found these opportunities for Grinnell that would not have been available otherwise. And you can hear in his voice how much he enjoyed yeah. doing this on behalf yeah. of a college for, with his friend. He says, well, I can't recall any committee assignments in my lifetime which I experienced such pleasure. When Joe would call me at night to discuss some action that would sw swell Grinnell's coffers, his enthusiasm was that of a kid in a candy shop. I couldn't help but share it. Well, it's just fascinating to hear about kind of just the deals that they were and the conversations that they were having back and forth. They talk about a TV station purchase. You have this in your story, I think, back in 1975. LBO of a, t of a local TV station. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And it was a great deal for them because it quadrupled in value when they sold it. I just think it's great. It's like a microcosm of what Warren Buffett did on a much bigger scale, right, uh, at Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. some of the types of deals. It's just kind of fascinating. What's your takeaway from this story, Janet? Well, it's quite an anomaly. I mean, you can't expect to get somebody like Warren Buffett on your investment committee <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and have your endowment, you know, $2 billion. And it's one of the richest schools per student of that measure. 
Um, but it's mm-hmm. it's just a nice little story of how one little tiny school, you know, built an right. arsenal to insulate itself from not only collapsing, but, you know, it has very generous financial aid for its students. And, yeah. you know, if you're thinking of a college, you know, need blind admissions and they're, you know, they're quite generous in what they can offer, you know, kids right. who need the, the aid. Great stuff. All right, Janet Lauren, always love catching up with you, Bloomberg News Endowments reporter on Warren Buffett's outrageous acts at Grinnell. You know, Carol, we're here in California. We got Tom Petty playing in the background. We got Peggy Collins back in New York. Got our sunglasses on. Doesn't get any better than that. No. Peggy Collins, the investing team leader for Bloomberg. Big story today, Pegs, with Apollo coming out with its earnings following the lead. I'm sure they would hate to hear me say that of Blackstone just a couple weeks ago, converting to a C Corp. So this is a honest to goodness trend now, huh? That's right, Jason. And as you said, Blackstone was the latest earlier this month, but we actually saw KKR and Aries announced plans to convert last year. So essentially, this is all a waterfall from President Trump's tax overhaul that was passed in December 2017, which essentially cut the corporate tax rate enough that private equity firms that were structured as a partnership, a publicly traded partnership, looked at it and said, you know what, this is now close enough in terms of rates that it makes it better for us to convert to a C-Corp. And so tell us, take us a step back, because I think many people listening or reading about this, uh, maybe including Carol Master, be like, uh, okay, like, why in the world do I care about this? Like, C Corp partnership, like, why does it matter? Tell us why it matters. That's right. It's a bit in the weeds, but the reason why it matters is because they're doing it to basically up their chances to be included in index funds. Those are the funds where all retail investors, lots of ordinary Americans like you and me, are pouring their money into. And if you're structured as a C-Corp, that makes it much, much easier to be included in index funds and ETFs. Why? Well, because a lot of the companies that provide index funds and ETFs don't want to deal with the hassle of having a company in that index where they have to send these onerous tax forms called K-1 forms. And that's essentially what this move eliminates, that those forms go away and then they can be basically more easily be added into index funds and mutual funds and ETFs. So why don't they do that first out of the gate initially? If that's they see that as a benefit, why don't they just, when they set up shop, do that? That's a great point, Carol. So one of the reasons why we've seen some of the private equity firms, including Apollo, who just announced the plans to shift today, sit back and wait a little bit was to see whether or not this actually gave their shares a, a bump. So they were thinking to themselves, let's see how, what, if our peers do it, let's see if it actually gives them a bump in the stock price. And as Jason, you've uh, written about and talked about a lot, these private equity firms have been saddled for a while with frustration over the fact that they feel like their stock price is undervalued. And we've certainly seen multiple firms, including KKR, Aries, and then Blackstone last week, get a bump in their share price once they could, once they announce plans to convert. Well, that's exactly right. And I was saying to Carol right before we came into this segment that when we were at uh, the Milken Conference down in LA, I caught up with Steve Schwartzman. We talked about it for the second time in as many weeks. And you know, he had said to me a couple weeks ago on air, essentially, eh, we probably should have done this sooner. I mean, especially because they have seen, as you pointed out, a real uh, bump in the stock price. Apollo today, uh, you know, Blackstone is up finally over its uh, highest level. I mean, it's hitting record highs. 
now after being public since 2007. Now, they go to great pains to point out correctly that if you include dividends and reinvest dividends and whatnot, uh, it's a much better performance. But on a pure, you know, sort of dollar basis in terms of what the, how the shares are valued, they had been languishing for sure. That's right. And Jason, in your interview earlier this week, I noted that Schwartzman said, you know, I think he said we're up 13% just since we made the announcement yeah. earlier in, in April that we were going to convert. So they haven't even done it yet. Apollo is expecting the conversion to take place in the third quarter of this year, 2019. But it, the, but we've seen the shares jump already today. Yeah. So who else is going to do this? Yeah. Who's next? <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> I think the last holdout of the big private equity firms that we follow is Carlyle. Right. So we're waiting to see if they are the next two. Essentially, at this point, it feels like fall in line with the other rivals and peers on converting to a C-Corp. And so what else did you pick up from Apollo's earnings today? I saw they went above uh, $300 billion in AUM. That's no joke. I mean, they're they're really uh, starting to bump up against the, the big players there, the Blackstones and the Brookfields of the world. What accounted for their results? They had another good quarter in terms of seeing their private equi- private credit, I should say, really do well in terms of driving some of the profit. Pre- the credit business brought in about $112.8 million. The other thing to note was they saw um, a pop from both their private and their public holdings. So Apollo, um, you know, a big part of Apollo's business is an annuity seller called Athene, Athene Holding. Right. So they, they saw a bump in terms of that bolstered by Athene better quarter in the first quarter. We saw a lot of market turmoil, as you know, at the end of last year, but a lot of stocks have been up in the first quarter of 2019, and that's helped Apollo as well. And how did they sort of jive with what we've heard from the other big PE names thus far, Blackstone, KKR? KKR was out yesterday, is that right? Um, you know what, Jason? It's been such a uh, whirlwind <laughs> week of earnings. But yes, I think KKR actually came out on Tuesday. Okay. Um, so we've got K- we had KKR this week. We had Blackstone in April just a couple of weeks ago, and then um, we had Carlyle this week, and then Apollo this morning rounds out the the biggies that we cover on and, earnings. And life seems pretty good for these guys. You know, I mean, the biggest thing they're worried about is essentially finding deals at the right price, right? That's right. The high valuations are something that their investors are concerned about. But as um, Steve Schwartzman, among others, have said, they are still seeing money flow into the asset class. You know, we saw Apollo report inflows of $25 billion in the quarter. So we're still seeing investors basically pour money into private equity firms for the returns, even though the capital is locked up. And even though some of these firms are sitting on billions in what we call dry powder, undeployed right. capital, looking for those deals that you're talking about. That's what blows my mind. I'm, like, I'm just looking at the swelling assets of each of these firms. They continue to do capital raises, write new funds, uh, and it's all about and you know investors what seeking alpha in terms of you know returns, and this is where they're finding it uh, at the PE firms. But I do wonder how they're going to put all this money to work, right, Peggy? Because there's so much, as you mentioned, dry powder out there. That's right, and it's certainly a lot of investors are pouring into the direct lending and pre- credit space where people are starting to look more closely at whether or not there are cracks there. I will say that the overall the investing space really seems to be barbelling. You're barbelling between investors who are pouring money into very low fee index funds and ETFs to track publicly traded companies and then pouring into money on the other side in much higher fee longer term lockup investments but that that have a track record of higher returns over that time period. 
Peggy Collins, investing team leader for Bloomberg, based in New York, joining us to talk about Apollo Blackstone. All the rest of them continuing to just pull in so, so many assets. And this conversion, it's a big deal because yeah. it really broadens the ownership of the firms. So that's what it comes down right. to. Right. It really is ultimately about that. So definitely some changes that have happened uh, at uh, Microsoft, right? And what's interesting is the cover story of Bloomberg Business Week is about the miracle of Microsoft. And what's fascinating, it's a well-known company, but it's had its ups and downs, and it's definitely had a variety of leadership. And that's what this story gets into, the current leadership and uh, what Satya Nadella has done for the company, kind of bringing Microsoft uh, back to its roots. Dina Bass is Seattle Bureau Chief at Bloomberg News, co-author of this story. She joins us on the phone from our Seattle Bureau. Along with us is, uh, along with her, I should say, is Joel Weber. Our editor of Bloomberg Business Week, back in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. We got I, to spend- I'm here. You're not, though. <laughs> I was going to say, where are you? Yeah, alone. We're- <laughs> we'll see you very, very soon. Hey, Dina, uh, Jason and I uh, were lucky enough to catch up with you uh, earlier in the week from uh, Milken out on the West Coast and talk about your cover story. Um, it is really fascinating. And, you know, Microsoft, not a cool company, but that's okay, right? Yeah, I think actually Satya Nadelli doesn't really want it to be a cool company. Uh, He does not want his management to focus on this market cap, biggest company value by valuation milestone. And he doesn't want them to believe their own hype. I think kind of the the misunderstanding about Microsoft, there's been a lot of ink spilled about whether it's cool again, whether it's sexy again. It it was never sexy. And and sort of the problem that it had in the, the, you know, a decade ago was that it was trying to be that. It was trying to be Apple. I, just got, I, I love, love the Joel <laughs> chuckle. <laughs> yeah, Come well, on in, Joel. I, I think it's, it, you know, it speaks to uh, one of the things that I think Microsoft was challenged with, was, which was it was trying to have a lot of different strategies that wasn't necessarily something that they were good at. They were trying to compete with Apple and have a Zune and have a iPad com- product, and it all sort of flopped and what was the genius of Nadella was to come in and kind of take stock he came from within the company and basically just said look it's hidden in plain sight we've got this cloud business that we could crush it with and in order to actually make that happen part of what he had to do was actually kind of uh, take windows out back and let it go yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, I think Windows is still a twenty billion dollars. I know, right? Company, but it, but it is the past. It is not the future. It, it on some level, it's perhaps akin to, although not that far along, IBM's uh, mainframe business. Right? It's still very profitable. But the, the future for them was was cloud, and and fortunately, Nadella had run that business because uh, Steve Ballmer put him in charge of it. But the the problem they had was by the time they got into the infrastructure services portion of that, Amazon was already you know more than four years in and, and had proved that it was a big business. So it, it took a lot of doing for, for Nadella to figure out how to um, improve the, the cloud product and the way they sell in order to really be competitive for at least some of the customers that, that Amazon goes after. Amazon's still, still the market leader, but Microsoft's racking up a lot of big customers. So, Dina, what's the impact of this sort of cultural shift that comes from the top, the temperament of the CEO, you know, in such sharp contrast? You know, I just think about that meme of Steve Ballmer on the stage and the sweating and the yelling and, and <laughs> the all of that. Like, the sweating. What, you know, what is Monkey that? Monkey boy. 
It, right. it is, it's a different kind. Of, he, it, Adela has a very different temperament. People characterize him as a listener, as somebody who, you know, wants to hear all opinions in meetings, who sits back and takes it all in. Uh, there's a lot of talk, including from, from Nadella's own book, about the, you know, attempts to, to be more of a growth mindset culture. But, but I think what people do miss when they focus on that is he is still a very intense person. He's very demanding. He wants his executives to have a lot of ambition and not to get caught up in this sort of, well, this is how we've always done things way of being. So he, he and he's not also, he's not afraid to ask things. I mean, he, he had to, we talked before about Windows. He, he had to get rid of that Nokia um, mobile phone push that, that uh, he inherited in his first days in the company. I mean, excuse me, his first days as CEO. And he has been able, though, to do that while bringing along the company. He's been able to shift things in, in ways that have been uncomfortable for people, but has managed to do it with this sort of uh, enough of a bringing everyone along and consensus building that it has not not only not upset the apple carpet but generally uh, you know improved morale and so what's the challenge is going to be going forward dina so look first of all amazon is still quite a lot bigger um microsoft has a, a lot of disparate um businesses still that are you know don't seem on the surface to be related to each other we look at you know the acquisition of github which does fit into their cloud strategy but it's a little different they have xbox but you know nadella is trying to turn xbox into a cloud push as well um yeah. So, you know, and there is still the fact that the Windows business was highly profitable. We're talking at 1.80% plus gross margin. So if you're an investor, you have to think to yourself, okay, the sales on commercial cloud look great. They're, you know, uh, just hit $34 billion for the last 12 months. But the profit is not what it was on unpackaged PC software. And note to self, if you see Satya Nadella, don't talk about the trillion-dollar market cap, right? <laughs> Yeah, that, don't the, do it. The, the anecdote that comes at the top of the story is that it's not something that is <laughs> you're able to talk about. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a great way to start the story because that's just where the company's been flirting with. All right, guys, we got to run. Hey, great story. The cover story of Bloomberg Business Week, a must read uh, for anybody watching what's going on in the tech community and really just, uh, you know, one of our big global tech companies. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, along with Dina Bass, Seattle Bureau chief co author of the story. She's in our Seattle Bureau. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the draw for excuse me. It's time for the drive to the close on this Thursday afternoon. Carol Schleif is back with us, Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Abbott Downing, a division of Wells Fargo Asset Manager, based in Minneapolis. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio today. Jason and myself in our Bloomberg 960 Studio in San Francisco. Carol, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg Radio. Jason and I spent the week at uh, Milken Institute's Global Conference. We were, you know, impressed by the amount of optimism that is out there among investors. How do you see the market at this point? I think the optimism is legitimate because we're hearing it from companies too, at least undergirding a lot of thought process. But in, investors overarchingly are 
relatively confident, but not exuberant and ebullient like you would expect for markets at new highs. Which is a good thing, right? We like that. When it gets too over-eager <laughs> and too much optimism, we all start to get a little nervous. Yeah, exactly. It's that climbing that proverbial wall of worry, which we've done all along for the last decade, basically, which is good because when you start getting markets that are too ebullient and blowing off the top, then people get sloppy. Valuations get high. Purchase prices get high. People make bad decisions, and it just gets too risky. And so, Carol, did you hear that sentiment reflected in what Chairman Jay Powell said yesterday in his statement and then subsequently in uh, conversations with reporters? I I think uh, Chairman Powell has actually been pretty level set all the way along. The markets mm-hmm. overexpected, I think, that the Fed would necessarily flip right from raising to cutting. And he's basically saying the economy is in pretty reasonable shape. It it behooves us to step back and watch this thing play out. There's a lot of factors that relate to business confidence that are more related to the tariffs that are already in place and the progress on things like that than there is necessarily what the Fed's doing with short-term rates. I'm also curious about some of your clients. They're ultra-high net worth uh, individuals. They often have a longer-term perspective. Carol, what are the kind of investments that they're interested in? You know, we are hearing about the increase in um, these individuals that they are looking at things like private equity and startups and, you know, the things that some of the big asset managers are investing in. So I'm just curious where they are increasingly wanting to put their money. I think private capital definitely is one place. Single strategy, hedge funds, and some of the unique non-correlated assets, these small slivers of investments that we can find in really unique places, some in the debt structure, some in earlier stage startups, some in unique industries in a global standpoint. And we're also looking hard at a lot of what's going on in emerging markets. And what about uh, opportunity zones? You know, especially when you're speaking to to your clients, I feel like that's something this came up. Again, Carol mentioned that we were at uh, Milken this week that came up in several conversations. And I feel like we've talked around that with a number of people who are either directly investing, advising clients uh, to invest, maybe even some of the folks who you know worked on that original legislation. Does that work as an investment at the moment for some of your customers? It works in in really specific situations, Mm -hmm. but you have to understand the tax piece of it. You have to understand, and the tax piece of it won't make a bad investment a good investment. It'll make a good investment better. So you have to have, there's really unique factors going into it. And people also have to understand that once you're invested in it, it's a long-term investment and the taxes are due on it before the investment matures, basically. So you have to have additional sources of capital. You have to have the right right kind of gain going in. So there's a lot of factors to consider, but we are having a lot of conversation with people about it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about the the tax piece of it, because Catherine Keating, who mm-hmm. runs uh, BNY uh, Wealth Management, uh, over, uh, we spoke with her, Carol and I both, uh, I should say Carol Masser and I uh, both uh, spoke with her. And she Carl's was, life might have also. Have, um, you know, and she was pointing out to, to the audience at, at Milken that, you know, taxes are something mm-hmm. that we probably don't think about enough, especially from an investment perspective, especially as, you know, folks try and become more sophisticated and start to uh, invest in some of these things that you, uh, Carol Schleife, are talking about, uh, you know, when it comes to maybe some of the non-traditional areas. You know, one of the really interesting things we've done recently is take 
traditional portfolio construction and layer across portfolio construction for ultra high net worth families in the highest brackets and layer on some tax assumptions on it and it comes up to a different set of portfolio allocations which would lead to more private capital more um, just a variety of of different things than you would get necessarily by not paying attention to the tax component. And we've actually, we're in the process of rolling out a whole set of investment objectives that relate to that tax adjusted for those and tax sensitive for those who are are more sensitive to that piece. Hey, Carol, I wonder, and I know, like I said, you know, your a lot of your clients may have a different uh, investment perspective or longer-term perspective, but I do wonder about, you know, for the mass market investor uh, and retail investor, I'm looking at a 21% gain in the uh, NASDAQ. We're looking at about a 16% gain in the S&P 500. Why not say, you know what, in any given year, we would be like, I'm pretty happy with this kind of return. Why not? just kind of park something in a in, in some kind of safe haven at this point because who knows how the rest of the year will play out in terms of fed policy uh in terms of corporate earnings in terms of the political you know factors and liabilities and unpredictabilities i get that temptation but on the other hand knowing number one you have to be right on the sell and you have to be right on the when are you going to get back in and you have to be right on a tax adjusted basis even if you're in a lower bracket, if you're selling now, a lot of what you're selling may have been bought back in December or added to back in December, so you've got short-term gains in it, which are taxed at ordinary income, so whatever your marginal bracket is is what they're going to be taxed at. So there's there's that issue, and then there's the issue, too, that in any given year, markets typically do have a decline. Last year was a more typical year with a decline that was almost 20% in the year, but the odds over the long run are that the stock market does tend to go up. So staying invested is important. And one of the other factors is, is we saw some data updated recently that shows 20-year returns on the markets being on average around 9% and 20-year returns for the um, the average investor being 2%. And so that, that big differential being the fact that people are trying to get all the way in, all the way out. But that right. said, it, it, it wouldn't be be incorrect thought process to li- sideline some of it to yeah. trim some gains put right. it in because asset, asset protection yeah. right exactly. preservation is as important as uh exactly increasing it exactly anyway good to get some time with you thanks so much have thanks a great for- uh Friday and a great weekend. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for the I opportunity. Keep, I keep thinking it's Friday. Carol, it's doesn't, this week. Carol M. doesn't know what day it is. <laughs> Carol S. does. Carol S. definitely does. Great to catch up with you, Carol. All right, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week live from San Francisco. It's Thursday here as well. It's just a little earlier in the day. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.